Well, earlier I was callously overruled and outnumbered. <laughs> of course you're going to bring this up with Mike. Come by, on. By the imbeciles who think that the advance the timeout fairy is <laughs> the best thing in the world for basketball. Now we're going to even the odds a little bit and bring on someone with a respected voice mm. in the game of basketball. A longtime college basketball writer, analyst for BTN, writer for the Sporting News, and and friend of those of us who like the game at 94 feet the way Mr. Naismith intended, <laughs> Mike DeCourcy of BTN and the Sporting News. Sorry for the long-winded introduction, Mike, but I'm very passionate about this as you are. I, I, I just wonder, like, I know Nebraska's football country, and I just wonder how people would react if you got to advance the ball 30 yards just for calling timeout. I mean, now, now here in Nebraska, with as bad as the football team has been recently, oh, I yeah. think they'd and like it. And the number it. of timeouts that they've called. <laughs> Bo Pelini era would have been fascinating with all those timeouts. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's the most ridiculous concept. Uh, you, you don't get, people say, well, it adds more excitement. What's well, so what if they played on trampolines? They'd be dunking all the time, and yet they did that, and nobody watched. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's illogical. It's antithetical to the nature of the sport. You don't get a head start or a boost up, or you don't get to play on, you know, like uh, piggyback on somebody's shoulders makes you taller. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And, it, and it, it, the idea that it makes the game more exciting, I don't know, did the, the Cavs game look dull last night the way it ended? How about the Colorado State-Nevada game? That seemed, it seemed like it needed any sort of boost to be more interesting. Absolutely not. I mean, and for them to both happen on the same night, uh, Jared Lucas of Nevada hits a half-court heave. Nevada beats Colorado State on the road. Max Struess hits one for the Cavaliers because the Cavaliers didn't have they didn't any have more, any timeouts. No more magic timeout fairies <laughs> uh, left. But it, it was appropriate that they both happened on the same night. People were like, "Man, that's cool. We like that." I I just I, it it just boggles my mind when people tell me that that somehow makes it more be, more interesting or better uh, when you know we don't. Hey, we called timeout in baseball, so now we get to pitch underhand to Shohei Itani or whatever. <laughs> it's just, it's nonsense. Mike, looking on the floor, um, you know, often we'll be watching these Nebraska games on BTN, and you'll be on there during halftime or in the post game, and, and the conversation surrounding this this team I found really interesting just over the course of this year, and I wanted to ask you this to start the conversation. Ceiling for this team in this NCAA tournament and also your expectation, I wonder how different each of those answers would be for the 2024 Nebraska Cornhuskers. My expectation now or when the year started? Right now. Well, I mean, I think, they, I think they're going to get in. I said that on BTN on the weekend. I'll be shocked if it doesn't happen. Uh, they would have to completely collapse and one, they're not the kind of team that's going to completely collapse, and two, the schedule doesn't really. Yeah. I mean, it would be uh, it would be monumental for them to lose out uh, with who they play. Uh, they do go to Ohio State, which has proven not to be easy for Purdue and Michigan State recently. Uh, but and that would be, by the way, a quad one win, uh, which uh, seems uh, incongruous considering they just dismissed their coach. But it would be and. And then there are two other games that are not as daunting. And so I, I, they're going to get in, and they will be hard to play because they have multiple players who aren't like very many other players, if any players. I mean, there's nobody like Casey who plays anything like him. Uh, maybe Rob Dillingham a little bit for Kentucky is similar. But, that I mean, so you, you would have had to play Kentucky or Nebraska to know what 
it's kind of like to play against Kase or uh, with what you get from Rink Mass, uh, that post ability low uh, with that with that into his left shoulder with the right hand jump hook or his ability to stand at the top of the key and orchestrate the offense. Not a lot of guys doing that. Uh, Coleman Hawkins does that, uh, and he has a greater ability to drive, but but Rink can drive it. Uh, so there's just not a lot of people like that. And then I suppose there's a few more Jawan Garys out there, but there aren't many, man. That dude's tough. Uh, he's skilled. He brings it every time. Uh, it's a team that I've really grown to enjoy watching play. It, the, for those who love the idea of athletic directors showing patience mm. and giving coaches an opportunity to either – fail and reinvent themselves or at least adjust kind of their way of thinking. The, the the Fred Hoiberg story of the last two years has to be a victory for those folks because we see it far too often in college and pro sports, quite frankly. Two, three years in, it's like, oh, I've got to pull the trigger on this guy. The patience shown by Trev Alberts has really paid off. And Hoiberg being willing to, you know, adjust kind of way he's done things because he could have been very easily stuck in his ways and said, hey, man, I this – this worked at Iowa State. It's going to work here. I, I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with your your approach there. I mean, uh, that that is one of those things that everybody wants to do is fire the coach because it seems so easy. If you fire the coach, everything gets fixed. Well, no, you're in the, the process of firing the coach breaks everything that's in place, and, and especially now where the tr- players can transfer immediately i mean you have the ability to transfer now uh, at any time uh after the season for a period of time uh but now if you open a second portal if you fire your coach uh because that's it's considered to be a, a significant event affecting the players so it, it you're you're literally breaking everything that's in place and now in those circumstances where everything's already broken, it's kind of what you have to do. But that's the judgment you have to make. And I got yelled at by a lot of Indiana fans online yesterday when I argued that, look, I don't, I don't agree with everything Mike Woodson's done at Indiana. Uh, I don't agree with every decision. I don't agree, agree with every approach. But I also know that if you become the school that fires your coach for the third time in less than a decade, that you've got problems, even if you've got five banners hanging in the end zone. And they and I got yelled at for that. And so I'm really excited to see what Fred's doing now. They showed promise at the end of last year. They had that great run in February. Kase took off, and, and, and he added to it by bringing in Rink uh, and some other guys. And, and it's, it's been really thrilling to watch them develop. And I, you knew Fred's a great coach from his time at – Iowa State, he demonstrated that over and over again. It just was a question of finding the right fit. And, and I don't understand, um, you know, especially in this case, for those who might have, uh, who might have been prone to moving on, why, you, why people don't understand how disruptive 2020 and 2021 were to everybody. I mean, they changed everything. When I hear now at Michigan State people talking about why this player is not succeeding or that player is not succeeding, uh, I hear a lot of, well, you know, he wasn't out there scouting them because nobody was out there scouting them, and maybe the, the, the connection wasn't the same as it would have been five years earlier. Uh, so I, I think it's been great to see Fred bounce back from all of that and put together a terrific team that's fun to watch, plays hard, plays together, 
plays for one another, uh, and plays for the fans at Pinnacle Bank. It's it's a real it's a, one of the really cool stories of college basketball this season. Mike, looking back to your uh, Monday column where you ranked the top twelve teams in in college basketball, you wrote about your view of the, the the Houston Cougars this season and why it might be tough to expect them to win it all. I wonder if you could expand on that position and and why you think that you could end up being proven right or or maybe why you're concerned about it right now because it did seem like there was more trepidation than usual in discussing them. Yeah, they look. They play great defense. Uh, they they are they are really physical. They make it hard to play against them. Constantly trapping the basketball. Uh, that all that all works really well for them, but they are highly dependent on two small guards. Jamal Shedd, six one, drives their offense as a point guard. He's a wonderful player. I'd take him every day of the week. L.J. Cryer, six one, is the, is the primary scoring option. You're not you, you don't go you don't see a lot of teams that are NCAA champions that that's how they run their offense. How that's how they drive their offense. Usually they have. A big guy, some wings, uh, guys who can take the ball to the rim and finish over people. I mean, that's not going to happen there. And they don't have a lot of post offense. Uh, even their even their uh, high, highest scoring wing is only six three. So it's just a different construction than we usually see from champions. And that's what that's what cause, gives me pause about them. Will it, could I see them in Phoenix? Sure. Uh, the, the best teams can always win four, but those last two are a lot harder to win than people often realize. Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News, also BTN, joining us here on the 42 Degrees, the Source Hotline. Last night in Allen Fieldhouse, BYU goes in, gets the upset win over Kansas. I've seen some takes this morning that KU's vulnerable, especially if Kevin McCuller is not fully healthy. But then there's others who are saying, wait a minute, let's give BYU some credit here. How, how did you see last night's result between those two? Well, I have to give BYU credit because I was one of the people that thought, even with uh, McCuller out, that they wouldn't be successful. They have been, they've been a team that's been more metrically impressive than they have been on the floor. They've lost a lot of games uh, that, uh, that a, a high, highly regarded tournament team should have probably won. Uh, but last night they, they took on the challenge and, and got it done. Uh, they made a lot of three-point shots, that, and to do that at Allen, it's not easy as a road team. Uh, so I give them a lot of credit for that. But uh, it, it is a diminished Kansas team without McCuller, and they won't be successful in March without him. They have gotten to the point now where they're getting enough out of their bench that if he is most of himself, then they'll be among the better teams in, in, the, in the tournament. They'll be one of the deeper threats. Uh, they still have some issues. They don't defend the lane particularly well. I, mean, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. I, they don't defend the rim particularly well. Uh, they, they do defend the lane for the most part, but they don't defend the rim particularly well. That's not what Hunter Dickinson does. Uh, he's much more of a scorer than anything. Uh, and so they'll, they'll ha- they have some issues. But, with, but their, their bench has come along. Uh, Johnny Furphy has given them a, a legitimate fifth starter, which they did not have for the first six weeks of the season. And so a lot has worked out for them, but uh, it, without Kevin, uh, they're not they're not going to Phoenix. If that's not going to happen, there's just not enough there. Mike, back in 2018, obviously we saw the first 16 over a one when Virginia lost. They won the the whole thing the very next season. Is, is there anything else beyond just that similarity of a random fact with uh, Purdue versus what happened last year, and, and maybe what's going to happen with them this year? And, and I guess I'm kind of asking, why should I buy into this year's group versus what happened last year and, and previous? 
Well, this year's group, first of all, is older. Uh, Zach is older and more experienced. The two guards, uh, Fletcher Lawyer and 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 Braden Smith, are older and and more you know more physically mature, more mentally mature. Uh, Mason Gillis is still there; he's a year older. So a lot of their key components have more experience now. And the addition of Lance Jones has made a significant improvement in that team. Uh, he's a he's a, a dynamic guard who can get his own shot, who's physical, uh, who can run the offense a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things about him. I think he's the biggest difference in that team from a year ago, uh, and I think that that's part of the reason why I believe that they can make it to Phoenix. Uh, there still are there still are issues there. I mean, Fletcher Lawyer had a big slump last February, and but it was expected, kind of hitting that freshman wall people talked about. They hit the same wall as the sophomore. Yeah. Uh, and he seemed to break out a little bit on Sunday in the Michigan game. He seemed better, uh, more, you know, like he was, like he was becoming more aggressive. When, when we were on the studio show on Saturday, uh, myself and Ray Bell Davis, uh, he mentioned the, uh, the fact that Fletch was one of seven in the previous five games heading into Michigan on Sunday. And when he mentioned that, I said, you know what? I said the bigger problem there is the seven than the one because guys going into shooting slumps is a problem. But if you're playing with Zach Eady and you're not shooting because you feel like you're not going to make, that's a bigger problem because you're not doing your job then. You've got to give him space by making shots. So Sunday he was more aggressive, not, you know, not his usual self, but still more aggressive than he had been in, those, in that five-game stretch. And if he can break back to where he has been, I mean, he was the best player on the floor when they drilled Arizona in Indianapolis back in December. He, I think he had 28 in that game. Uh, so if he can get back to being that guy, uh, then, then they become really, really dangerous. Mike DeCourcy, BTN in the Sporting News. Earlier this week, Brad Brownell at Clemson threw some pointed criticism towards the Big 12 saying that their non-conference schedule gained them a lot of net system points because they blew out some bad competition. Does the committee need to refocus on the weight margin of victory differently in the net? Well, I mean, I think that's possible. Um, but, I, you know, one of the things that there's, – there's two things, I think, that bother me a lot about that uh, statement. The first is, are you mad because they did it or because you didn't think of it? Because like it's not like it's not like it's new. Um, he's not totally wrong there. They did play lesser schedules uh, than than the ACC did uh, in, in general. But also, the ACC didn't win any games. I mean, their their record out of conference was horrendous. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I've been I've been looking into this, and I haven't found I have not gotten to the Big Ten yet. Um, or the Big East, but I haven't filed a conference yet that was impressive in non-conference play, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, Big 12, he's not wrong. ACC, uh, he's probably wrong because he probably thinks they were better. They weren't. Uh, the SEC uh, has three teams in the top five of the, of the Nets, I believe. Um, Tennessee, legit. They played people and beat some good ones. Uh, Alabama and, and Auburn didn't beat anybody. Uh, they might. They probably played even softer schedules than the majority of the Big 12. So it's. It, I think there are some issues there that have to be looked at. Uh, but the problem is that it, the, the the fun. It's not just the net that's out there thinking these things. It's, it, it's the net is similar in structure and execution. If you look at 
uh, Ken Palm, and uh, I, I haven't done this lately, but last year at the end of the year, I took the top 20 teams uh, from the Ken Palm rankings and the net rankings, and there's 17 of them were the same. Yeah. Not all in the exact same spot. One, one is one, one, two. They were 17 of the top 20. were all basically in the same region in, in each ranking. So I, I think that the question is, are, are, are we believing in predictive metrics or not? Um, I, I think in general they've done pretty well in demonstrating who's likely to win. They're not infallible. Nothing is. But they've generally been proven to be effective. So I don't know that I would necessarily pop off the idea that, that the net rankings are, are worth something. But I've always been a proponent from the very beginning of not using a predictive metric as the fundamental element for the selection process. I've always been in favor of a result metric, uh, one that does not include margin of victory, but rather just the overall strength of the teams you've beaten, and et cetera. Uh, where did you, who did you play and where did you play and how did you do? That, that should be the fundamental of the selection process. They decided to be more hip and modern than that. Uh, and so it, I, I'm curious if they had chosen – a result metric, would they be getting the same heat? I'm not sure. Mike DeCourcy, you can see him on BTN's coverage of men's basketball. Also, read him in the sporting news. He had a great story earlier this week on the uh, invention of the plus-minus stat, where it came from, the motivation. Goes back to John Wooden, some really interesting stuff there. I uh, strongly encourage you to read it, sportingnews.com. Mike, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. You bet. Thank you, Mike. Mike DeCourcy, Hall of Fame basketball writer on the 42 Degrees of Source hotline. Uh, a couple of responses to the early portion of the discussion in relation to Fred Hoiberg. Uh, Amazing Daniel says, wait, was that really about patience? If he didn't have that stupid contract extension, not sure it goes that way. Feels like a little revisionist to skip over that nugget. I know he restructured, but he was going from a ridiculous sp- starting point in those talks. I think essentially the argument Daniel's making is if – Old Billy Moose didn't give uh, Fred the contract extension. Does Trev move on from him? I'm, I know I certainly thought so at the time. Um, I I probably would still think so today. Uh, on the other hand, did he want to fire two coaches? You know, in in quick succession from each other. Yeah, I mean, there's probably an element of uh, truth there that a little bit of Trev's hand was forced because you didn't want to swallow two giant buyouts within the same fiscal year, um, but. You could also tell by the demeanor and the conversation around Hoiberg when, in regards to Trev Alberts that Trev was going to be a lot more patient with Fred. And I think because that's because Hoiberg rescinded in kind. Because Hoiberg rescinded in kind. He realized he's not going to be stubborn and stuck in his ways Correct. and not change anything. He actually did. They got rid of Abdul Massey. I, I, I mean, part of this isn't just... Hey, I'm going to bring a coach in. We're going to talk about your contract. But it was also about how are you going to fix this? And I guarantee you the conversations that took place between Alberts and Frost and Mm. Alberts and Hoiberg were very different conversations. And the tenor of those conversations were probably very different. One gave off a certain vibe. The other gave off a different kind of vibe. And it was easier to be, you know, to, to give some leniency towards Fred because I think there was an element there where Trev identified 
First when he took the job, then when he had to make a hard decision, this is a guy I can still work with. Mm-hmm. 100%. Uh, another text, uh, kind of disagreeing, I guess, with Mike. From Doc, he says, great coaches don't take seven years to get a winning record. This year is a one-off for Nebraska. And Fred, next year's roster will be different again. There has been no consistency on Nebraska's roster and looks like it won't be going forward. See, now that's interesting because I would say last year to this year, I mean, I know that they have added some pieces. Rink Mass certainly comes to mind. But it's not like this is an entirely new roster again. And I think the expectation is that a lot of these players will be back next season. Now, you know, if Doc ends up being right and it's a brand new roster next year, I'll I'll rescind that. But I don't think that this is just churning over everything year after year anymore. Well, uh, and, and who were we talking to yesterday? Mitch. We were talking to Mitch Sherman. Uh, Coleman and Tominaga and Alec are the only ones we know for sure won't be back because they will have ex- exhausted their eligibility. But, yeah. you know, everyone else has a potential being back. I would say this. You can't really guarantee anything anymore, especially in the world of college athletics, in terms of who's coming back and who's not 100%. because of the transfer portal. I think the odds of the remaining core of this roster being retained this offseason – are better than they've been in any other offseason. And the way Hoiberg was able to go out and find good pieces in the transfer portal and has now seemingly found a good identity for his squad and what he wants to do, I would say that, you know, that the no, I have no idea of next year's if this is going to be the start of something great or the start of something good, but I'm more confident in it today than I would have been a year ago today. 100%. Or especially two years ago. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The further you go back and it's like, wasn't confident at all. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. It it may not be. It may not be anything, but it could be. At least you're in a spot now where you're no longer wondering who the coach is going to be next year. Mm -hmm. Unless Hoiberg's got a huge surprise for us. There's no, there's not going to be any talk about hot seats this year. Correct. And that's a huge bonus. Uh, by the way, we mentioned last segment that Richard Lewis has passed. Indeed, he died of a heart attack earlier today at age 76. I'd forgotten this, that in April, last April, he announced that he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And for for those of you who like Curb Your Enthusiasm, I guess those of you who, who don't watch it, there was a storyline on an episode, as Alex Kirshner just pointed out, that aired t- 10 days ago, literally 10 days ago, where they were arguing about him and Larry, who would be included in whose will. Yes. And it was very, very funny. And so that happens, and 10 days later, he passes away. Mm. I've never engaged with any of his work outside of Curb. I, it seems like I need to, given all the flowers that he is receiving today. I never I'll saw Men in Tights. I just, I just, I've never seen any just, of his stand-ups. I just recognize, you know, I, I've always recognized him, because he always had a very distinguished, uh, distinguished look he always had kind of the longer now it's, it was white hair but it was mm. dark black hair and he kind of gave off a hip vibe mm-hmm. um but i had never and never really remembered anything that he was in yeah i just recognized him because he had a very distinctive look yeah all right coming up the randomness of the first 12 team playoff and tonight's creighton game mm. against seton hall preview of that to come on 1620 the zone